Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders and industry stakeholders at a time when the maturing industry is challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement and savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to continue the conversation. And now, please enjoy the episode. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with AIA Australia, a leading life and wellbeing specialist with 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Welcome to the Future of Super podcast series. I'm your host, Julia Newbold, Managing Editor at Conexus, publisher of Investment Magazine, and today we're talking about equity in super. Equity in super is a very broad topic, and we want to look at age equity, gender equity, income equity, and intergenerational equity. It's a big conversation topic, and I'm fortunate to have with me two very well-respected voices in superannuation to talk about where they see potential inequities, and how things could be made a little more equitable. With that, I'm pleased to welcome our two experts, David Knox and Deborah Ralston. David Knox is a senior partner and senior actuary at Mercer Australia. He is also the lead author of the Mercer CFA Institute Global Pension Index, formerly known as the Melbourne Mercer Global Pension Index, which now in its 14th year encourages improved pension systems around the world to provide better outcomes for all retirees. Since its inception in 2009, the index has expanded to cover 44 systems, almost two-thirds of the world's population, using more than 50 indicators. David is also national leader of the research and David is also national leader of research and policy and has been the actuary to several state public sector pension schemes. Deborah Ralston is an experienced company director and professorial fellow at Monash University. She is a member of the RBA's Payments System Board and the Future Fund Board of Guardians and is a non-executive director of the SMSF Association and SuperEd. Her expertise in public policy, innovation and retirement issues is reflected in appointments to the Federal Government's Retirement Income Review Panel, the Comprehensive Income Products for Retirement Framework Advisory Committee and the inaugural chair of ASIC's Digital Finance Advisory Board. Welcome both. Thank you. So let's start with a little more about the experiences of our guests. David, can you tell us a little bit more about the Global Pension Index, what it's about and perhaps where you've got to it now that it's in its 14th year? Yes, thank you, Julia. Very happy to talk about the Global Pension Index. As you said, it looks at 44 retirement income systems around the world. And I'm pleased to say that Australia this year ranked sixth. So we've got a good system when we compare ourselves internationally. Within the index, we look at three particular sub-indices, if you like. One is adequacy, which is all about the benefits you receive. Sustainability is the second one, which is about can the system keep delivering, not just next year, but for decades to come. And the third area we look at is integrity, which is really about 
Can you trust the system? Is it well regulated? And are members protected? Now, I said Australia was sixth. We get a B plus rating, but there are three countries that get an A rating. They are Iceland, the Netherlands, and Denmark. So how can we get to an A-grade rating? I mentioned three areas in particular. Firstly, we need a stronger focus on retirement. We've done very well in accumulating the dollars through the SG system, but we're now beginning to move into focusing on retirement income, what people are spending in retirement. And really in that space, we've just got to the beginning and that will continue to improve. Secondly, we need to broaden the coverage of our system. The better systems cover the self-employed, and we haven't yet got to that point. Sure, some self-employed people have superannuation, but many do not. So we need to broaden our system. And thirdly, when we look at contribution rates, we're currently putting in, or the SG rate is 10.5%. In the better systems, it's 12% or even higher. We will probably get to 12%, but we're not there yet. So with those three developments, I think we can become an A-grade system, but that needs a little bit more reform. And Deborah, you've read through David's work on the index, and is there anything that stands out here for yourself? Well, I I have been involved with the index since its inception, and I I think it's a wonderful tool because at the first time we released it was 2009, and we were going through the, the review. Everyone knew what was wrong with the system, but they didn't realise that we actually have many, many good aspects of our system. So I think that get that comparative view is really important. And I particularly like the uh, special chapter this year, which was about how we, uh, for many countries in the world, in the world, their biggest concern is moving from DB to DC. But it also talks about the needs of people in retirement. And as David said, our focus for most of the time that we've had a system has been on accumulation and not on retirement. So it's an excellent thought-provoking chapter on just how we get ourselves organised to have more of a focus on retirement. So today I want to start by looking at the purpose of super, which I believe isn't clear or the same goal for everyone. Deborah, what do you see as the purpose of super? I think it's really to make sure that people enjoy um, a comparable standard of living and retirement that they enjoy during their working life. And that's different for everyone. So there's no one size fits all on that. But when we did the retirement income review, we thought it was very important that the system delivers an adequate level of income for people in retirement, that there is equity so that people who um, uh, the system should be targeted at people who um, have uh, the need needs, and secondly, that people on similar circumstances should have very similar outcomes. It should also be cohesive, and the three pillars of retirement should work together well. And of course, it's very complex and hard for people to understand. And also, uh, it has to be um, have sustainability into the future. And when we looked at equity, we were looking at people on different incomes and different wealth, differences between men and women, singles and couples, homeowners, non-homeowners, those covered by the SG and those that are not, um, voluntary retirees who retire and involuntary retirees who retire before the age pension age, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, 
uh, those with a disability and equity across generations. So it's a very, very broad canvas when we look at equity because everyone has different circumstances, particularly true in retirement, different levels of wealth, income and different circumstances as I outlined. And David, would you like to comment here? Yes, I think Deb's covered a, a very broad, broad canvas there and she's absolutely right. When we move into retirement, um, we're, it's a heterogeneous group of people. I hate to use that big word, but we're all different. Um, whereas when we're accumulating, we're actually all investing for the future. And one of the issues we need to think about when we move into retirement is we are moving from a saving environment to a spending environment. And that is a change of context. That is a change of mindset. And what we want to spend money on will vary depending on our needs, depending on our health, our household, et cetera. So there is no one size fits all. But Deb's absolutely right. We need a system that is fair and provides support for those who are in need, but also enables uh, those um, who have got the, the capacity to maintain their living standards. And that, that really should be the, the goal of the whole system going beyond super to include the age pension. And when I talk about maintaining living standards, I don't talk about the flamboyant lifestyle of uh, movie stars or sports stars, but really average Australians. And I think that's the goal that we should be aiming for. So if we break it down a little bit, gender gaps and inequity between the super balances of men and women is one of the areas that tends to get a lot of airplay. Is the gap and inequity here really as big an issue as we see it? So, David, I might start with you. Sure. We, we recognise that there is a significant gender gap in super, and the cause of that, or the causes of that are many and really relate to different employment patterns, broadly speaking, between men and women. And there's a whole range of causes of that we can go into, but that's, that's the end result. The implication is when you look at super alone, there is a gender gap. However, what happens is that the means-tested age pension reduces that gap because more women get the age pension than men. And we also find that when we look at households, then, of course, often in a, a household or a couple situation, a husband and wife, male and female, working together, the gap's not quite so bad. So I think, yes, there is a gender gap. We can certainly do things to reduce that gender super gap, um, an obvious one, I think, is SG on paid parental leave. But another one that I think we need to look at and we'll talk about this later is carers' credit uh, for people who are caring for babies and young children. And Deborah, do you see that super is becoming more equitable between the genders? Yeah, I, I think it is becoming more equitable. And the thing about super is that it's directly related to your working life. So if you are working less or working part-time, you're obviously going to have a lower balance when it comes to retirement. And some of the things that assist uh, women to play a, a stronger role in the workforce, of course, is childcare, and that's um, uh, something that we're seeing addressed now. But there are three particular things that we 
could see as being obviously needed to be addressed in, in our report, and one was about um, disclosure of super balances in divorce proceedings. Often there's an inequitable distribution of assets because not everything is obvious. That's been addressed. Um, the 450 per month threshold, threshold for SG payments was a big issue for women because many of the casual workers on lower incomes tend to be women. That's been addressed. That's been a good thing. And uh, as um, we're just talking about, the government's just made an announcement about extending paid parental leave from 18 to 26 weeks. All of those things are good. And there's also, you know, over the last 20 years, the length of, uh, of, of females' working life has expanded from about 25 to 40 years. So that in itself, women being more actively participating in the workforce is making a difference as well. Thanks, Deborah. I guess um, the disclosure of the super balance in divorce proceedings, I guess that has to come with a bit of education to um, help women understand you know, that they can access that and it is important not to always just go for the property, which a lot of women tend to do. Well, it's to make sure that the court can access ATO information about both partners. So there's an equitable distribution. And that's uh, not new. I think someone tried to do something about that in about 2015 and it's just taken a long time to come through. But it's very important because if you look at men and women without children, there's not a lot of equity gap, but it's when you have a family and a family breakup, there's a considerable difference in the outcomes for um, men and women in that circumstance. David, you talked a bit before about a baby bonus or childbirth credit. Can you tell us a bit how, about how that might work? Sure. Yes. What we're thinking there is that and I'm talking about primary carers, many of whom are women after a baby is born, who might take six or 12 months out of the workforce or even a bit longer. And, of course, having that period out of the workforce means they're not getting any superannuation contributions, which means their retirement benefit is therefore lower. They've got less superannuation. And, and yet, by having the child, they're doing something very much for the benefit of the community longer term. And therefore, their retirement years shouldn't be sacrificed, if you like, with that lower superannuation. So what we're arguing here is there should be a, a super baby bonus, if you like, given to the primary carer. And we're suggesting something in the order of four and a half to $5,000 as a government contribution. How do we get that figure? It's basically the SG rate times the minimum wage for a year. And that would be paid to everybody who's a primary carer, whether they've had a part-time job or full-time job or no job beforehand, but it's a credit to their future retirement benefit. Sounds like a terrific idea. So let's move to the differences between different levels of income earners in super and retirement income. Where are we seeing the inequity here? Deborah, do superannuation balances people take into retirement broadly, broadly reflect working life inequities? Yeah, it really does to some extent. Uh, as I mentioned before, if you're a part-time worker or if you have periods out of the workforce, your balance is going to be lower than if you were in the workforce. We also have an issue of um, full-time workers. Uh, there's, on, on average, a difference between 
the average female from time wage and male from time wage. And that's a much broader societal issue as well about ensuring that people are paid the same for the same kind of work. Um, but the um, really interesting figures that uh, I was looking at was if you look at the gap between um, men and women who are working full-time, uh, the gap is something like 20%. When we see the, that um, the correction in super contributions through uh, the Division 293 tax for high-income earners and some contributions for low-income earners, then we see that gap being reduced. And then further, when you take into account the means test on the age pension, once again, you see that uh, inequity being slightly reduced so that you end up with retirement income differences being closer to 10%. So that's a very smart part of how we have structured the system. And uh, it's, it's not enough in itself, but it, it is a really good statement about how we've developed that public policy. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. And David, I know that you see middle income earners missing out the most in this area. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I think we need to recognise that in terms of government support for retirement income, there are two major areas the way government supports. The first one is the means-tested age pension, and that is designed to alleviate poverty and is targeted at low to middle income earners. The second area that government supports is through superannuation tax concessions. And we know most of those go to higher income earners. So you have a little bit of a, a U-shape, if you like, where lower income earners get the age pension, higher income earners get the tax concessions, middle income earners get less tax concessions, and yet they're squeezed by the means test. And so their level of government support is less. And the principal reason for that is the way the assets test works because the assets test takes into account your financial situation, assets you have, super, excluding the family home. And the assets test is quite severe at $3 a fortnight, which is equivalent to a rate of return of 7.8%. Um, so middle income earners get squeezed in that position because of the impact of the, the assets test. And I would advocate that a fairer way of balancing out that level of government support is actually to reduce the tape on the assets test from $3 a fortnight to, um, per $1,000 to $2 a fortnight, and then just taper the assets test, and that would give a, a more equitable way of distributing government support for retirement income. Wow. Sounds like a lot of research has gone into that figure that you've come up with. Yeah, and I, I think um, it, it does highlight too that when you change the taper rate, you change the net assets that people, the assets that people have outside of the family home. So before the taper rate was changed in uh, 2017, which was I think uh, $1 for every $1,000 extra, people with assets up to about $1.2 
uh, outside of the family home were still eligible for the age pension. So it's brought the level down, um, and I think we need to think about that a bit because one of the inequities we do see is that if people have put a lot of their savings into the family home, that's completely outside the assets test. So the net wealth of people is quite different depending on how much they put into housing as opposed to in their other um, uh, other assets, maybe investment income or whatever. So it, it's, uh, there's a good point in what David is saying because it is the middle income people who are squeezed between the both ends. But also we need to think a little bit more about that assets test because one of the great inequities in our society at the moment is that we have many older people who bought their houses when they were very affordable and we have younger people who are really having difficulty getting into the market. So is it correct really to leave that major asset completely outside of how we consider people's wealth? Mm. I, I, I would uh, endorse that. I, I think it's a very difficult political topic, of course, to even think about adding the family home and primary, or primary residence into the assets test. But at some point, we need, we'll need to tackle that. And I suggest the way to do that is to start at a fairly high level, two, three, four million dollar home, which would affect very few people. But then you start to change the expectation. It would be a very gradual reform, but I think it would be fairer. So that's a great segue on to, you know, the inequity between homeowners and non-homeowners in retirement and with the superannuation. Um, so is it, it's not strictly a superannuation issue, but should it be a greater consideration? It's, um, it is a really difficult issue. I think if we look at people in retirement, the two groups who are most likely to be faced with poverty are non-homeowners, renters, and secondly, uh, people who um, retire much earlier than the age pension and spend extended periods on USAR. But going to that first group, um, because the cost of housing has gone up so much, the Commonwealth's rent assistance really does not help very much at all. And even if you were to double that amount, it's still not really meeting market rates. So we do have a big problem, which is outside of superannuation uh, in some ways, uh, and that is a much greater need for public housing than we have been providing or for subsidised rents for people on low incomes. And I think that's a really major challenge, um, which... Um, is is facing us um, really stands outside super in many ways. But I was coming to mind that some super funds are investing in um, programs to assist with that at the same time. Um, David, do you have any comments on that? No, I, think, I, I mean, I think we do have an issue of a shortage of affordable housing, and I know that's on the uh, program for the new government to, to look at and whether superannuation funds can indeed invest in that space. Uh, there is certainly a need to invest in that, in that space, but we also need to recognise that any investments need to generate a good return for the super fund members. So it's mm -hmm. not philanthropy. You're still investing for the benefit of fund members. So the uh, it's not so much the uh, what you do, but it's how you do it and the market needs to develop, I suggest, with help from the government 
um, to actually develop appropriate securities that super funds can invest in that are long-term securities that will generate good return for their members while at the same time investing in uh, the need for affordable housing. And, and we do have um, a commitment from the last election of a housing future fund to assist in that regard as well. Wow. So another area of potential inequity is single versus a couple. So how can your partnership status affect your retirement income and is there any other way of making things more equitable, David? Yes, we, we have a bit of a funny system in Australia when we look at retirement incomes because superannuation is all about the individual and when we come to a couple, then the age pension is means-tested on the couple, not the individual. So you get inequities within that very space. One way of looking at this going forward would be to, in fact, look at the household, both in respect of superannuation and the age pension. But that becomes complicated because the household will have two different, two individuals will have two different employers, two different super funds, etc. So it's not easy. But we do have to recognise that two people living together, whether they're they're married or two brothers or sisters living together, it's a more efficient way of living than an individual. So the individual does need additional support. Um, and that's why the age pension for a couple is less than double the single age pension, and that's for good reason. But there is inequities in that space because we treat super and the pension in, in different buckets, if you like. And it's a challenge for super funds too with the retirement income covenant because most people, when they retire, do as a couple and uh, there are issues around that as well. Exactly. And the, the super fund doesn't know about the financial position of the other partner. Uh, so so there's, there, hopefully over time we will start to solve that problem. But the super funds are now required to assist pre-retirees and retirees in their retirement they need to know a little bit more than just what's in an individual's super balance. Yeah, that's a good step forward. Um, so retirement isn't always planned. You know, ABS statistics show that 28% of all Australians retired involuntarily before the age of 65 and 8% retired involuntarily after this age. So most of us have an age in mind where we want to retire and we calculate what we might need based on this but if we pushed into a different scenario through ill health or the job market, how can this be made more equitable through our system? Deborah? Well, as I mentioned, this group is one that's most likely to face a situation of poverty and um, uh, it, it's, it's a huge challenge. Uh, we used to assist people who retired early due to ill health by... Um, giving them the uh, disability pension, which is considerably more beneficial than USAR. But at the present time, there doesn't seem to be much of an option to assist uh, in that way. And certainly um, there's a great need to assist people to find different kinds of jobs, perhaps jobs that are less physically taxing because we do need people to stay in the workforce for longer if they can, and also... Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of jobs that, you know, people can't physically continue. You know, a lot of nurses want to retire earlier because it's a very difficult job. David, is there anything you'd like to add here? 
Yeah, I... I think this is a, a problem area, and I think often in policy terms or indeed in the modelling terms, we forget the fact that many people retire in their 60s before the age pension age, which is now 66 and a half, and go into 67. So superannuation is not payable just from the pension age, it's payable from the time you retire and you can access your super preservation age is going to 60. So it's that seven-year gap that we is often missed when we think about policy and we think about modelling and how the system should go. Um, so I think we do need to recognise that and we do need to recognise that superannuation is a really important component of supporting people financially during those years. Uh, Deborah's already mentioned the fact that we need to actually think about our labour market and think about people transitioning gradually into retirement. And that, I think... Um, we need to think about part-time work. We need to think about people uh, gradually moving into retirement. It should no longer be a, a cliff, you know, work full-time and then you do nothing. Uh, if people want to do that, that's fine. But I think that whole concept of phased retirement, uh, I think there's a great example um, with Bunnings who take on uh, plumbers and electricians from their hard years of work, if you like, as advisors within Bunnings working a couple of days a week with their experience to help the do-it-yourselfers um, understand what they're doing. So I think there are ways of using the skills and experience in a less pressured environment. And is the system set up to accommodate that now? Well, the, the system can accommodate it from the super perspective, absolutely. Pe people can gradually draw down a pension and still be contributing if that's the environment. I think what we need is the employers, if you like, to recognise that these older people uh, have got skills and experience. And if you look at our labour force participation rate of those aged 55 to 64, for example, our, in Australia, ours is about 10% lower than New Zealand, for example. Um, now, there may be many reasons for that, uh, but we do see many countries having a higher participation rate at older ages than we currently have in Australia. Yeah, and as you say, there could be many reasons for that. Um, move on to intergenerational equity. So intergenerational equity looks at how the system affects different generational cohorts in the way they put into the system and take out of the system. Deborah, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We have something like a generational bargain, and that is that our taxpayers today are paying taxes to support the age pension and, and uh, benefits for people who are not working. And over time, uh, we see that what we call the dependency ratio, the number of retired people to working people, is increasing. So uh, we have to think carefully about the burden for younger generations coming through. And how can it be tweaked to make it more equitable? Well, David mentioned earlier that one of the things about our system at the present time is that we really don't have a limit on the amount of money you can put into super. So some of the biggest beneficiaries of super tax concessions are those who are earning a lot in earnings tax. And earnings tax is the one part of tax concessions which you could argue is not as sustainable because it is growing very significantly with very large growing balances. I, I think that's right. The retirement income review suggests that there's 11,000 people with more than $5 million in super. That number is growing or has grown even since that review, and we think it's probably 12,000 now and probably a bit higher. Um, 
I think it's you know, been suggested that $5 million is certainly sufficient for people to have a comfortable retirement and maintain their lifestyle. And I'm not sure we should be supporting through tax concessions balances that are higher than that. Um, it would generate some revenue for the government. Um, it's not a lot, but it would present the system as a much fairer system. When you talk about intergenerational equity, one of the things that can result from that is that you've got a lot of savings which are tax protected by taxpayers going to the children of wealthier people. So that increases the um, um, lack of equity uh, across the system. So uh, I'm not sure taxpayers really want to be contributing to that. Yeah, and, and that brings us back to the purpose of super. And, you know, we broadly accept here that it's to fund retirement, but to what extent do you feel that it's currently being done as what you said, Deborah, for example, are people trying to keep it and live off the income and leave a large bequest? And is this somehow affecting the equity in the whole system? I'm not sure that people particularly mean to hoard their retirement savings, but it goes back to the point that David made earlier, that when we think about superannuation, we think about saving, saving, saving. And it's very hard when you get to a certain point to say, oh, now I've got to go spending, spending, spending. <laughs> it's a very different mindset. So one of the things that would be very helpful there is to keep telling people instead of just what their balance is over time, what that means in terms of retirement income. And if people start thinking of their super savings in terms of retirement income, then they take a different mindset into retirement. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And one of the things that we've suggested in the Global Index to come to that point compared to other countries, not only do we have a focus on retirement income, but we should be providing every member with a projection of their retirement income on their annual statement, not how much money they've got, $100,000 sounds a lot of money, but in terms of retirement income, it's not much at all. And when you start expressing it, is and this is likely to give you an income of $5,000 a year in your retirement. People say, is that all? Oh, I better save a bit more. And then you start to say, okay, yes, you're saving, but then we need to move into products in the retirement space, and we need to make that a lot easier for members and I think we need to move into default products. Not saying you have to take this product, but here's a good product for you that's got a, a combination of spending, saving, and access to capital, some longevity protection. We really haven't got unknown products are being developed at the moment and will continue to be developed. Uh, it's not straightforward, but we need to move in that direction so that people have confidence to spend their money rather than just hoard it. Yeah, and it's having the confidence to spend and know that you're not going to run out of money before you retire. So a product that has some kind of longevity insurance can give people the confidence to relax and just enjoy their retirement and make the most of what they've saved. So there's a lot of education, I think, required at, at that point to let people understand. But I, I think we've you know, had a great discussion today and we realised we've got a great system and, you know, with some tweaks, it can be a lot more equitable. So thank you both for your time today and for your you. insight on it all. Yeah, pleasure, Julia. Thanks. I'd also like to thank AIA, our sponsor for today. And you've been listening to David Knox and Deborah Ralston on the future of super. Please keep reading Investment Magazine to hear more in the series. Thank you.